1: He is a rock star. But growing up in New Jersey, John Bon Jovi had dreams and a vision that went far beyond just being a lead singer in a rock and roll band. He wanted to do more. Bon Jovi has been one of the biggest bands in the world for almost 30 years. They have sold over a hundred million albums and continue to sell out arenas and stadiums around the world again and again and again, and they show no signs of slowing down. Back in the 90s, when success and fame threatened to tear his band apart at the seams, John took control and never looked back. The themes in his songs, optimism, love, and a belief in the power of we, are the same core values that he holds most dear in his life. It's what keeps him pushing to reach the next mountaintop and the one after that. Everybody has a story and there's something to be learned from every experience use your life as a class this is masterclass with john bon jovi
2: when i was seven my folks like every other parent want you to try to do something so they take you to guitar lessons and i remember (laughs) really well this guy smoking a pipe in a little doorway you know like a closet almost so he's stinking up the room with this pipe He's falling asleep while he's teaching you and he had gone, this isn't fun, this isn't cool, this is nothing, and I'm dying on this guy's you know, pipe. Went home, threw that acoustic guitar down the basement stairs, broke a tuning peg, It sat down there until I was 13. And a man by the name of Al Paranello moved in across the street from my childhood home, and he was in a club band. He was like a hip guy, and he showed us how to play songs. And he showed me how to play House of the Rising Sun. And he said, you know, if you don't know this next week, and I, I came back and I didn't know it. He said, Don't waste my time, man. Just get out of here. Leave. That was great. It was the best thing he ever said to me. Because if he coddled me and said, Ah, right, I wouldn't have taken it seriously. But he said, Don't waste my time. Get out of my basement. I got a family upstairs. Get lost. I learned it. Then I learned the next one. I learned the next one. When you learn a song, start to think about songs. When you think about songs, you want to write songs. When you write songs, you get to be here. You know, and so it was at his <sighs> encouragement, thanks to his encouragement, I stayed with it. And, um, you know, there's a medallion that I give to people on our tours since 1986. It's a diamond medallion in the shape of the Superman logo, and it has the slippery one wet road sign onto two little tire tracks by today's standards of bling that these guys wear and do and be, you know, uh, it's, it's a joke. But this little medallion I gave to our most intimates in 1986 at Madison Square Garden on the Slippery Wet tour. You have to do two world tours, every leg of each tour. If you don't make it through every leg of the tour, you don't get one. So you have to do two world tours. You have to be with me for a number of years before you get one. There's about 150 in existence. People took great pride in ownership of those. Al Parinello took mine to his grave, and that's where mine went. It's a special thing, and that was a special man in my, you know, in my life. In 1978 and 79 and 80, when those pictures were hanging on your wall, They were pictures of Led Zeppelin with a 747. It was bigger than bigger than big. The vision of grandeur was there. Girls and guitars and, you know, money and fast cars and rebellion, not having to work for the man. So I I was 16, 17. I didn't have any great responsibilities yet. But one thing I did have was a single-minded, laser beam focus that there was nothing going to distract me from being a better singer, a better writer, and a better player. Well, my parents did reinforce my optimism. They believed that you could be what you wanna be and work hard, never say never. Whatever you wanted to do was was at your fingertips. You just had to just work hard to get it. They came to the realization early on that if I was gonna be playing in a bar at three in the morning, at least they knew where I was and i literally was in those bars until two three in the morning go to high school with sunglasses on which was you know in, in retrospect wonderfully single-minded but talk about everything on <laughs> one number on the roulette wheel there was nothing to fall back on it, but it was part of that beautiful romantic i was luckier than lucky because it worked out but in my hometown you worked in the factory you joined the service or you wrote a hit song I grew up in the shadow of New York City, the greatest city in the world with all its media, but you still had the protection of the tunnel and the bridge to go and develop it. You're learning to play the guitar, you're learning to sing, you're learning to perform in front of people, you're playing in bars in New Jersey. I had this second cousin who I didn't know before and really didn't know after, who owned a recording studio. And so that's the place where music was made. And my dad asked him to come and see me play because I was so driven and single-minded. And he said, you know, at least tell my kid if he's wasting his time. And the guy graciously came to the show and he said, your band stinks, but you're all right. He says, and uh, if you ever need any more advice, give me a shout. So when I got out of high school, I quit that band that I was just a member of at the time. I was just the singer in someone's band. Having already quit my own cover band because I knew even out of high school, you had to play your own music or forget it. So I went to this distant relative and I asked him if I could come to the studio to watch and go for whatever you want i would be happy to do and he was gracious enough to allow me to do that for a couple of years so I'd go for this go for that 50 bucks a week and the opportunity to go in there in the middle of the night and record my demos or on weekends and uh, they kept a tally of things and you know you paid it off when you were done but it was also an incredible learning experience if only for one thing I learned that the bigger the star, the nicer the person. Anyone who was anyone was in that place recording records at that time. The biggest stars in rock and roll history, the Rolling Stones, were so incredibly gracious to a kid, you know, you didn't forget it. And I still haven't forgotten it. 30 years later, Mick Jagger saying, how's those demos going? You're like, good, (laughs) good. That was crazy, crazy, crazy. So for those couple years, it was unbelievable and even if you just saw him in passing you know you you were there breathing the same air if you don't believe in yourself more than anything you're already behind the eight ball you've got to have that and if you're going to truly succeed you know there's people telling you no every step along the way and that takes determination single-minded unbelievable focus that you are willing to fight everybody and turn the tv set over in order to get the job done I didn't have a band at that time. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have anything. I had an idea. And that single-minded naivete and romantic vision and version of what the music business was, I thought to myself, I'm frustrated. Nobody's picking up on this cassette that I'm distributing in the mail with my Dear Sir letter. And I thought, who's the loneliest man in the music business? The DJ. And I thought, here's a guy that has no clue if anyone's listening to him hasn't a clue of what his influence is, but he still had a lot of influence. How do I contact the DJ? So there was a brand new radio station starting here in New York City, just on the outskirts. They were so new that fortunately for me, they didn't have a receptionist. And I went to that radio station and I walked in the door and the DJ was literally on the air. So he looked through the window and he hesitated. and He gave me the, you know, one second sign. He spun the record and poked his head out like, (laughs) <laughs> and I said, I'm here, I have a cassette. I told him who I was, what I had done, why I was frustrated. And he said, hang around, we'll talk when I'm done. And he did, and he said, we're doing a homegrown record. And I thought to myself, it's not enough for me. <laughs> I don't wanna be a part of your homegrown record. I don't want a singles deal. And reluctantly, I agreed. But what happened then is not only did that song get played in New York City, but that station was owned by a chain of stations. And then subsequently I got an Airplane in Chicago, in Detroit, in Denver, in Tampa, and it started to snowball. And all those same A&R guys went on their desks here in New York and started calling up. And I put together the band for what was supposed to be three weeks. And 28 years later, I can't get rid of them. <laughs> we got our record deal I signed it in uh, 1983. We worked four band albums from 83 till 90, never leaving the road, two of which were monstrous albums, one called Slippery When Wet. Still, I dare say, one of the top 100 for sure biggest selling albums of all time, followed by New Jersey, which was another monster record. So you went from being a guy in a rock band that went from bars to having a record deal. There wasn't a lot of things that change, to suddenly you are the CEO of a corporation and you've got millions of dollars and you've got people phoning over you and you got your parents coming to you for advice and you know, you're making that funny face like, what? You know, I, I'm 25 years old, what do I know about anything? With that, the world changed. But in truth, we didn't. We were still as afraid and insecure and cocky and confident as we ever were. So in a weird way, we sort of held on to each other even though we were coming apart at the seams. That was supposed to be the first end of the band. And ultimately, we were led to help. Not a psychiatrist, but more of a mediator. This man's name was Lou Cox. And because maybe I was either smarter than most or dumber than everyone else. I said, this guy should come in and sit with us and work through this. And he did. The band were adamantly opposed. No other band I knew had ever done it. He wasn't getting paid a commission. He had no other agenda. He didn't work for the record company. He wasn't the manager. He wasn't the songwriter. He came in and said, that's really dumb what you just said. That was really dumb what you just said. Why don't you just say it again so I can tell you both how dumb you are and you can say it to each other. So we sat with this guy and work through our issues. And I asked the guys to have faith in this vision. And if we, the power of we, believed in it, we could be the Rolling Stones. And reluctantly, one by one, they put their hands in. That hands in became the album cover. And we not only survived, but thrived in that record and sold 10 million copies. But because they had that faith to give it a shot 20 years after that record,
0: Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
2: A band is not dissimilar from a family. It has its dynamics. It's not totally dissimilar from a marriage. And it doesn't have many differences than a football team. And why I say all of those as examples is someone has to be the quarterback, but only one guy can be the quarterback. You can't win a ball game without somebody blocking for you and somebody to catch the ball. You really can't get through a marriage unless it's a true partnership. And you can't have a family where that's somebody to look up to and somebody to beat on once in a while. (laughs) All of these things are a part of my leadership ability. You have to lead by example. You have to be a good listener. You have to be a good friend. You have to know when to take a punch and when to give one. Share the spotlight and to take the spotlight. Love one another unconditionally, but push each other more than anyone else would. Right from day one, Richie and I established a creative partnership. We enjoyed each other's company, we respected each other's ability, and we grew together, we were boys. Tico was a generation older than I, so he would come off like the big brother But, you know, he had his demons, and when he got his demons straightened, he was our mentor. Dave had to be the black sheep for a long time because he didn't get to collaborate on the songs. He didn't get to participate in those kind of situations. So he went off and proved everybody how talented he was, and he wrote the best musical on Broadway last year. And he's writing plays now. No one's more proud of his accomplishments than me and we. I call it the Henry Ford theory of management. It was his name on the car, but that car didn't roll off that line because of his vision. He had the vision other people need to implement it. Alex Such was the first rock star in the band. He looked the part, he played well, sang great. He was the leader of his band when I got him to join. He was crazy as the day is long. Guns, knives, alcohol, drugs, women, he did them all. He pulled a gun on me before we, I mean, I, I've, I've lived it. But while we were all young, dumb and having fun, we started to get very serious about it. And we were five albums in and releasing the greatest hits with a couple of new songs and he couldn't even play on them. You know, and you're like, wait a minute, man. It is, we're not some kid band anymore. This is, this is for real. Everybody has to realize a role and a collaborative effort under the guise of what that role is. He knew that I had to have somebody else play on the record. And uh, I let him go. God bless him. He never wrote a book. He never told the tales in the media. He quit the business. And he had said to us, if I can't be in the Rolling Stones or Bon Jovi, I quit. And he did. But that's slot. Will remain vacant. That slot will not be filled. Because Al was there in the beginning, you know, and that, that meant a lot to me. The stories that I'll have with these guys, we've lived more of our lives together than we did apart. That's the underlying truth, is I've spent 28 years with these guys and 21 years without them. We've seen Marriages, we've seen babies, we've seen parents die, we've seen divorces, we've seen poor, we've seen rich, we've seen the world change, we've seen, you know, a lot of things together. We are of the same cloth. We were all born in the same hospital by the same doctor. We all grew up drinking from the same cup. And all those things make for a unique experience, one that I haven't had with my own wife, nor have I had with my siblings, or my parents, because we, the band, have lived this collective, unbelievable story for nearly three decades, but no one else was there but us. I don't care if it's 500 or 50,000 people. For me, the experience doesn't change a bit. I'm trying my hardest to be the best I can be no matter who I'm doing it in front of, and I mean that. It's honest, it's true, and it's as real as it gets. There's no facade between me and that audience when I'm out there doing what it is that I do. What I love to see, whether it's for 50 or 50,000, is that exchange. If it's in their eyes or in their actions, I know when the connection's made. And if the connection's made, you're on another plane. And you don't come out of it until it's done. It's euphoric. Case in point, it's my life. In all honesty, I directly took that title from the animals because you can't copyright a title i can say that on on tv (laughs) now i had just come back from rome and malta shooting u571 i was fortunate enough to have been cast in that movie enjoyed it immensely really wanted to pursue acting found a great humility in the craft It gave me all the exuberance of youth with the knowledge of the experiences that i had had in the music business. So I was already successful, but I was starting over again. So I was excited. So I come back from that set feeling pretty darn good about where I'm at right now with the movie and writing these songs. And Richie and I are sitting down for a couple last shots at the single. And I said, I got this one. And I was really caught up in... Frank Sinatra, who had just passed, and I said, like Frankie said, I did it my way. Knowing full well that it was Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. I did movies when I wanted to. I made records when I wanted to. I was really enamored with Mr. Sinatra. Richie fought me tooth and nail on that lyric. He says, who cares about this Frankie? Who's Frankie? Why? Stop trying to explain it to me. I says, first of all, I have to sing it every night. Second of all, I get the meaning.' backs down, song goes out universally. Frankie became you or your friend or your brother or somebody else that you were thinking about. That song empowered so many people because they go, like, Frank, I'm Frankie. Everybody became, I'm Frankie. It was about me wanting to be in movies and music at the same time. When you write a song like that and it hits that nerve, you don't know where it comes from or why, but if it comes from that pure place, chances are it's gonna hit that pure place for someone else. It's unbelievable the power that music has. It's unbelievable the reach that American pop culture has. It's truly phenomenal. It bridges all kinds of cultures, language barriers. They don't speak English, but they get the concepts. They don't believe the same things that you do, but it brings people together. You find that though someone may look different than you and have a different background than you, you have a lot of common thread. When we went to Moscow for the first time, this was before the wall came down. We played Lenin Stadium, where our Olympic athletes could not go. We realized that though they hadn't been exposed to pop culture in a way that we thought they may have, you know, be it MTV or whatever, their vision and version of it was alive in their minds and in their hearts. They embraced us with that same curiosity that we were embracing them, yet we grew up in an era where we were told that they're the bad guys, fight the bad guys, hide from the bad guys. If you would see the Soviet infrastructure like I saw it at that time, you would shake your head in disbelief and think, these are the bad guys? First of all, they were very kind, wonderful, warm people. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have infrastructure to build proper buildings. That that stadium you would have thought was 60 years old and it was 20 years old. People are generally, generally, not always, but generally very good, curious, love their kids, love their wives and their fathers and their mothers, love their homeland, but they're led by media They're led by fear. And they're led by ignorance, which becomes this kind of an arrogance. I don't like you because your hair is purple. Well, try it. You might like purple hair. You know what I'm saying? Fill in the blank with the purple hair. So we all need to be blind sometime in order to see. I believe that all the arts are reliant on each other in that books, movies, music, and art are all interdependent. An artist may have music on in the background while he's painting his picture. A songwriter reads a book or watches a movie to influence his song. Movies rely heavily on the music that underscores it or the song that accompanies it in order for it to really come to fruition. And each of the writers and creators of these four art forms are definitely inspired by the others.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
2: I got to be around Paul McCartney and Paul Simon a couple of days ago. And Paul Simon had come over to say hi. And I was sitting with Paul McCartney. And he came over and he said, hi John, how are you doing? And he gave Paul a hug. And they had their heads next to each other and then I smiled like a Cheshire cat. And Paul Simon said, what are you smiling at? I said, would you look at you two? And Paul Simon looked at Paul McCartney and he says, we have a few copyrights, don't we? And I was like, <laughs> You guys should be on Mount Rushmore. (laughs) You are gods. I think that continuum is so important because God knows that the world wouldn't be the same without Dylan, Simon, McCartney. And I want those guys to come back again. You know, I, I do. But in this disposable age and era in which we live, I was fearful that... The next generation was going to lose touch because the music was going away i was worried that there wouldn't be a next bob dylan because everything is out of a reality show or a format of radio that wasn't going to allow a croaky voice singer that was cranky half the time change the world there was a dry spell for a number of years in this last decade that it seemed as though the fuel had run out. Radio stations are all so fragmented. The opportunity to purchase music in a place where we as young men had that chance to look on a sleeve and even make your judgment call based on the artwork, the song titles, the credits, the pictures, your imagination, Now I have a radio station that plays 15 songs that all sound the same with disposable artists because that radio station only caters to this audience. The voice of the DJ who created my being isn't as influential as he once was. The concept of touring and having an opportunity to do three records before you break has changed. But I think, I hope, that there's an opportunity for some rebounding through things like YouTube, and that a kid doesn't need a record deal like I did to get his music out. He could start it on a viral kind of plane. I'm seeing some sparks leading back to that. My hope is that it will happen. I was born at a time when John Kennedy was president. There was this uplifting kind of a belief in my home, in my hometown. It was very middle-class, hard-working, ethnically diverse, middle-class New Jersey. And that optimism was definitely repeated over and over and over in my house. And by the time I was old enough to vote, President Reagan's elected to office and telling everybody that, golly gee, everything's gonna be all right, you know, and the good guys are gonna win. And from everything from we're gonna go to the moon to we're gonna win to we can do this to USA wins the hockey, you know, all the kind of stuff when you're growing up, you go, Wow, this is this is you could do this. You could you could be whatever you want to be in America. You could still go and dream, you could reach beyond. Those messages of hope, they were a part of who I am. And a grand part of our appeal is its timeless, classic, optimistic, uplifting lyric because people believe in that hope. They believe in 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 those messages of I can if I'm given the opportunity. And if I don't have the opportunity, I'll make it. When we wrote Born to Follow on the heels of what was to become President Obama's being elected, I felt that message, you know, and that we, the people, are tired of being led around by this guy, that guy. It's time to, you know, do what it is that we do and speak up, speak out. That song worked the world over. It did. I watched it, you know. I've heard so many different tweets about how the kids in Iran singing it, why I saw the reaction that I see every night to that song. People relate to those, those storylines. And they become international, timeless, and classic. That's the goal, isn't it? It doesn't matter if you're a blue-collar kid from New Jersey or if you're in Australia or South Africa. Everyone has that kind of optimism and belief that it's gonna work out. And if you don't, this might help you believe
1: it. John doesn't just sing about how things can get better or, or how we need to hold on to our hopes and dreams. He truly believes that we can make a difference in the world. He's taken up the fight against homelessness and hunger in America, and just like everything else he does, he's doing it the Bon Jovi way.
2: My wife always says, you should start every sentence by saying, on my planet. (laughs) Because I don't live on the real, real world, but I get to visit it often. I've been blessed more than any man should be. And maybe that's why I feel so responsible to continue to give it back. I remember late 80s, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a patch on a jack and said, the President's Council for Physical Fitness. Do you remember that that patch as a kid? And you'd go do jumping jacks and, you you know, qualify for physical fitness. Well, I didn't forget that. But I took it 20-plus years later and thought to myself, the President's Council on Volunteerism. Hmm. How do I create that? Well, two good years later, President Obama appointed me to the President's Council on Community Solutions. And it's not just volunteerism. It's much bigger and broader than that. And so we're focusing now on job creation for a disenfranchised demographic of 16 to 24-year-olds. And it's a very difficult task at hand. But we have a mission, and I'm a firm believer that the collective we really can do something. I spent a lot of time thinking in my 20s and 30s I was gonna try to build a legacy. By my latter 40s and now walking into 50, I'm just trying to leave one. And and it's frail because you're doing good things every day, you're trying to live a full life and have some fun along the way, but I could walk out of here and get hit by a car. You gotta think, did you actually do something that made a difference? I realized a long time ago that I'm not a scientist, so you can't rely on me to invent the cure. But I know that with effort, desire, my ability to partner with people, it just takes determination and dollars a lot of time. So for years, I've been telling this story of the nun and the rock star. Our name is Sister Mary Scullion. She is my patron saint, my secret weapon, my mentor, my idol. And she is one of the leading advocates for the homeless When I met her six years ago now through a friend, I said to her, Sister Mary, you know, when you jump on board with me, I said, you might as well fasten that seatbelt because it's going to be a wild ride. And she's been able to educate me to make sure that our, our mission remains true. The Soul Kitchen focused our efforts on providing the opportunity for families to go out and have a great meal in a real wonderful setting and provide you the opportunity to sit, have a meal, meet your neighbors, be a part of the conversation, build community, but there are no prices on our menus. So if you can, you pay what you think the meal was worth. If you cannot afford to, you come and you volunteer. If you can't afford or don't have the time to come and work in our restaurant, go to the soup kitchen, go to the food pantry. They'll give you vouchers to our kitchen. And it's apolitical. There's no politics involved in this. There's no religion involved in this. There is just the common brotherhood of man. So the benevolent America that I still believe in, it's out there, it's out there.
1: Like his hero, Frank Sinatra, John Bon Jovi has done it his way. And he's been doing it like that for almost 30 years. He's dreamed bigger than big. He didn't take no for an answer. And when the pressures of fame and superstardom threatened to destroy the band that he loves, he sought the help he needed to keep it together. And now they're stronger than ever. John's in it for the long haul, always aiming high and still climbing, looking for that next mountain.
2: You know, I came up in an era with a genre of music and a, a peer group that I had very little in common with. And our music was put into bands that, you know, I enjoyed their music, and I, I, I you know, won't mention names. I remember they were wanting to be on the cover of Circus magazine, and even as a boy, I said, "I want to be on the cover of Time." <laughs> you know, they, they'd look at me, and go, "What? You know, that's like my dad's magazine about stuff." I go, I'm gonna be on, I'm gonna be on a whole different level. I just had a different vision. It was being here for the long haul on a much bigger, brighter plane than the short term cliched rock stardom stuff there's a lot of guys laying on the side of the road right now from my profession or at my age that have uh, run into that brick wall they're frustrated in in life or career choice or their their home and family lives or their dreams didn't come true but then there's that great story of the 50 year old who just started doing x today and he's the one that's gonna tell you how great it was when he was 60, 70, and 80. Those are inspirations. Any time that you think you've hit the top of the mountain, the truth of the matter is, is you just reached another mountain and it's there to climb over again. So I made sure that I learned that early on because had I accepted, I don't know, at 21 years old, that a record deal was the top of the hill, that boy certainly couldn't talk to who I am now. When I heard Runaway on the radio, I thought I made it. When I got a record deal, I thought I made it. When we had Slippery and Wet, I thought we'd made it. When we played your first time at an arena and you headlined, you thought you made it. Each step along the way is just a life's lesson in, in humility. And it gives you the ammunition to go on and be excited about
1: the next day. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.